Welcome to the Fieldhouse Strength Podcast. Fieldhouse Strength Podcast. If it's strength and conditioning, powerlifting, athlete performance, general fitness, and anything in between, we're talking about it. We're talking about it. Your hosts are pros who've done it all and here to share that knowledge with you. This is the Fieldhouse Strength Podcast. And here are your hosts, Sean Jones and Jonathan Bird. And welcome back to the Fieldhouse Strength Podcast. I'm Sean Jones, and with me as always is Jonathan Bird. Welcome back, guys. So today, uh, we've been thinking a little bit about the different types of strength training, uh, you know, because Bird has been, you know, really involved in training the football team, obviously, and I've had some involvement here and there. But uh, the question has come up about power lifting and, and weight lifting in terms of Olympic lifting. So I think it's good for us to discuss uh, the benefits and the differences of each one and some of the challenges that you'll face. So first, Bird, if you'll give us a, a nice introduction to powerlifting for those who hadn't uh, listened to a lot of these podcasts and aren't familiar with the sport in general. Uh, you know, powerlifting consists of the bench, the squat, and the deadlift. Not in that order, the squat, bench, deadlift, but to create the biggest total possible. Pretty much every high school team across America is going to squat, bench, and deadlift. Now, the question is, what other movements do you do and pair with them? And that's a whole different can of worms, which kind of led us into this question in the first place. But, again, almost all the lifts are driven to specifically improve your squat, bench, and deadlift as far as a powerlifting regimen. Because that's the sport itself, is those movements. And Olympic lifting is a sport unto itself as well. Much different in the fact that the movements are different but I think speed is a huge difference between the two. It is, and truthfully, in the basic form of powerlifting, you don't really worry about explosiveness. But you know, in the higher end scale of coaching and in training, it you know, speed becomes a huge part of it as well. That's where a big part of Louis Simmons and his Westside Barbell training stuff come from. The Olympic Soviet Union learning to use speed and explosive development. So there's some carryover that go hand in hand in the training principles. The movements are just much different. Right. Olympic lifting consists of the clean and jerk and the snatch. So the snatch is probably the quickest lift of the two because it's a one-part lift where you've got a wide grip and you explosively move to end up with the bar over your head. And then the clean and jerk is you clean the weight up to your chest and then end up jerking it above your head. You know, it's been said more than one time that the clean is the fastest movement in sports. And that speed is not only, that speed is necessary so you can actually get it to your chest because you're not going to be able to muscle up a significant amount of weight and be able to move it over your head yeah, unless you're using there, there is no way to slowly move a barbell from the floor to above your head. You know, it's just not possible. Not possible. And it's always been interesting to me how each one of those is named. You know, one of them is called powerlifting, and power really means speed strength. How fast can you move the most weight possible? And that's Olympic weightlifting. And the fact that powerlifting, really the speed that you move the weight doesn't matter as long as you complete the lift. Now, as Bird said before, you know, you've got to train power so that you're able to move it throughout certain portions of the lift. But in terms of competition itself, the speed of it's not that important. As long as you're able to complete the lift and get the light, right? 
Correct. At the end of the day, all that matters are certain parameters of the depth of the bar and the hip and those things. But it could be as slow as possible. It could be slightly uneven. There's a lot of things that, you know, in Olympic lifting versus powerlifting just don't apply. Yeah, and those two types of lifting, you know, those are the mo- most popular ones in that they're used in preparation for different sports as well as you're going to have some aspect of either one in a well-balanced training program. Absolutely. A well-balanced program for athletes is going to have some some variations of everything that we've talked about so far. A lot of that comes down to the coach's skill set and what their beliefs are. Exactly, because you'll have some people that say they'd rather, you know, if they're training athletes and they only pick one movement, then it's going to be the power clean. So tell me a little bit about when preparing for the bench, squat, and deadlift, what are some unique challenges that present themselves in preparing for a competition in that regard? Um, as far as preparing for a competition, really it comes down to some true fundamentals. You know, a lot of people have tight hips, ankles, things of those nature, and that really prevents good depth in the squat. You know, the bench press is just a super universal lift. Everybody in the world does it at some degree. So that one's obviously not as complicated. It's much more complicated at a high level than people realize. Um, and the deadlift, you run into some issues there where, it, you know, people have some severe rounding of the back and, and put themselves in positions that just lead to injury uh, much quicker than just your casual lift. And a lot of times you can't train that out by just doing those lifts, right? Correct. It takes, you know, a watchful eye of what's going on and corrective movements sometimes to put yourself in a position. A lot of people don't realize that the core plays such a pivotal part in it that their, their weak core is leading to their, you know, bad fundamentals of the lift and later to the injury. And I think there's a misconception among a lot of people about what the core consists of. Most people think about crunches and sit-ups. That's a really small part of it. Uh, an easy definition is abs, hips, and lower back. Yeah, yeah. we're talking uh, the casual person, if you described it as the trunk, would be a little better description versus the core. You know, because when you say that to your casual gym person, when you say core, usually they're going to think about training their abs. And when, I, when I'm describing the core, I'm really talking about your trunk. Yeah, and the interesting thing is at a lower level when you're dealing with most people uh, off the street, if you just do crunches and that sort of thing, that's more of a detriment than a benefit because those muscles are shortened by sitting all the time. And so all you're doing, if you think that you're doing a complete core workout by doing crunches, is making those issues worse, like the rounding of the back that you just talked about. Absolutely. And with Olympic lifting, the primary technique or coaching cue that's used is to accomplish triple extension. That's extension at the ankle, the knee, and the hips. And basically, that means you're able to straighten them out forcefully and quickly. And so, just like with the powerlifting movements, compensations come into play in a huge way there. Not having the flexibility in your shoulders and wrists and, and upper body to be able to get to the rack position where you're holding the bar at your chest, that's something that's going to really put you at a disadvantage if you can't do it. And then being able to not just extend those joints, but you also have to be able to flex them to be able to squat down into a good position to catch it. I don't know if I ever told you this story, but I was at a seminar. Actually, it was a certification with USA Weightlifting, and there was a guy that was teaching it, and he had trained at the Olympic Center. And he had a guy that he trained with that had made the transition from powerlifting to Olympic lifting. 
That seems to me like that would be a pretty tough one. Yeah, not as easy as most of us say. Yeah, and I think he said he was 5'8", 350 pounds and could dunk a basketball. Shane Hammond. Is that who it was? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he said that any time they were doing their auxiliary work, that they would have to wait for him to squat because he had all the 45s. Mm -hmm. You know, he probably had a lot of athletic ability to begin with, if I had to guess. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Very explosive power lifter at that. I bet. How was he as a power lifter? How accomplished? Like four worker holder. I mean, as yeah. good as they come. Yeah, and so he figured, let's try something new. Yeah, he wanted to be an Olympian. You know, yeah. kind of what that come down to. So now we've kind of given an overview of what each one of them are. How would you use powerlifting? And let's talk in terms of an athlete, football players, track athletes, basketball players. What role do those three lifts play in their training regimen? With what I do, they're a huge part of it. I mean, each one kind of gets their own specific day. Uh, you know, we have a squat day, a bench day, a deadlift day. And we actually do a fair amount of cleaning because I feel like that's a very important role as well. So it's a pivotal part for us. I've always felt that if our squat and our deadlift are moving, our clean is going to move as well. And that's pretty much hold true for me and the athletes that I've coached over the years. The bench press is really kind of an overrated lift when it comes to the sport of football. And there's not a whole lot of pressing in that nature that really comes into play. It's really more about creating just total upper body strength when it comes to the bench press for us. You know, it's interesting that you said that there's an overemphasis on bench press because, you know, you and I have both seen the guy that can bench press a ton and has skinny legs. and But years ago, if you look back to the strong men of the early 1900s, late 1800s, their standard was what can you lift over your head. Yeah, yeah. It was a huge part of training back then. I think what you emphasize in your training really depends on, like any other time, where you're beginning. Mm -hmm. If you've got someone that is pretty quick and is able to get triple extension, but it isn't very strong, then I would recommend that they start with those powerlifting lifts and at least focus on them. One thing that just came to mind when you were talking about it, you know, you do those movements on different days, which is just, uh, you know, solid programming. But to get your total as a power lifter, you have to do it all at one meet, right? Yeah, all in one day and over a few hours. So it's a fairly, fairly short turnaround. And the same thing with Olympic lifting. You're doing a total as well, and it's all in one day as well. Yeah, and so what was your total again? Uh, total 2,500 pounds at 275. Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. When I think about that, I think about how that would tax your nervous system. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, at the end of a meet, most of the time, I'm just dragging a broken body down the hallway to get back to my hotel room to go to sleep. I mean, pretty, pretty busted, pretty tired, pretty, pretty hurt up. <laughs> You're putting in a max effort on three lifts back to back. Before I move on and talk a little bit more about Olympic lifting, I think that the nervous system is one of the biggest things that people do not consider when it comes to their training regimen. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there, there's there's people on the internet that tell you there's no way that you can zap your nervous system from lifting, and I would tell you that's an absolute lie. Live that. Any good training program has to have some built-in deloads to some degree for you to be able to truly maximize your strength, especially that feeling of run down, tired, beat up. Yeah, there's a different threshold for every person, and eventually you can train that threshold and get that threshold further. 
But once you're there, the only way to recover is some downtime. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about what it's been like when you've taxed your nervous system at level and what you've had to do. You know, I've been to the point where, don't be judgmental here. Uh, I've been to the point where, you know, I've been bleeding from random places from my head, from my eyes and, and, and everything else. But that's not necessarily a sign of uh, your nervous system being that. But, you know, kind of your inability to, to get out of bed, you got that kind of brain fog if you've ever been in that situation before. The inability to recover at all, no matter how tight your nutrition is or how much fluid you're getting in. And then just the overall being weak. You know, you feel like everything has dropped 30, 40 pounds on a lift. And most of the time when you got there, it's too late. Right. A good training regiment has that stuff built in prior to so that you're able to recover before you get to the point where it causes you to take downtime. It's basically like an overtraining syndrome. Yeah. Most people think of that as a chronic long-term thing, but powerlifting is such a different animal that you can do that in a competition because yeah. the intensity is so high. You know, you'll end up with the shakes and... You know, all kinds of issues. You know, we're not talking about simple muscle cramps and things like that. That's just a hydration and nutrition issue. Well, we're talking about the inability to basically for your body to function. And I mean, you know, your nervous system is what recruits those muscles to work. And if that's been compromised, then, you know, you're in trouble. And that takes a lot of patience and, and rest to remedy something like that. Let me point out one thing that Olympic lifting and powerlifting have in common in terms of nervous system response is that the adaptations that you're trying to get are both heavily based on your nervous system. So when it comes to maximal strength, you're trying to train your body and your nervous system to recruit as many muscle fibers as possible. Correct. And with Olympic lifting, you're trying to recruit as many as possible as fast as possible. So, you know, as opposed to hypertrophy or endurance, the nervous system is probably more important in these two types of lifts than it is any other place. For one, if you do poor lifts, that's going to affect your nervous system because it's going to adapt to bad movement patterns. And there's a lot of technique involved in powerlifting, and I think people don't always think of that. And Olympic lifting is almost all technique. A lot of times overseas, at least, and it's becoming more of a trend here, they're starting kids in Olympic lifting as early as eight years old with a broomstick and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. They start at a very young age. It's such a skill that you have to develop. Well, and don't let the social media world fool you now, you know, with everybody recording every lift they do as far as powerlifting goes. I did as well because it was important to see technical errors, mm -hmm. but Olympic lifting at a high level, there are three or four cameras running, multiple coaches watching each segment of it. It is such technical movements at such a high level, whereas, you know, the best power lifter in the world right now, Dan Bell and Dave Hoff, and I don't know if they record anything. <laughs> yeah, they just move stuff. Yeah, they're yeah. just strong. <laughs> so with anybody that's just going into the gym, and their goal is to get stronger, be more powerful. Adding both elements into it is going to be necessary. Now, do they need to learn the specific technique of the clean and jerk or the snatch? Not necessarily. Do you think that the power lifts, deadlift, bench, squat, can they be adjusted for the average person? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, your, your casual gym person can go to the gym and do the power lifts and compete in a power lifting meet and have a good time. Right. Absolutely. Now, Olympic lifting, on the other hand, 
it, it is not a casual thing. It's not something that they can just throw on and do. Right. One thing I do not, I do not disagree that that the power clean or clean and jerk would be massively beneficial to an athlete. But one thing that you have to take consideration, and especially with you in this circumstance, when we talked about how early people start with it, is teaching those techniques and having the time to do it. Well, and on top of that is typically training most athletes, you are in a group setting, massive group setting with all kinds of different skill sets. Mm-hmm. Doing a snatch with kids with various skill sets, some not strong enough that they need to be doing it with PVC pipe versus a bar is just inherently dangerous. Right. And what it comes down to is cost-benefit analysis. Is it worth it? Are you going to get as much from it from all that teaching time as you need to, I would say no, simply because there are so many things that a ninth and 10th grader, they're pretty much novices and bigger fish to fry in that regard. Absolutely. Now, once we work our way to a base of strength training, we we power clean weekly. Every week we do some sort of clean. And eventually, as our kids get older, I would like to do some snatches and things with kettlebells. But I doubt we will ever get to the point where I could train 45 kids in a classroom and we're all doing yeah, and in, in my nine to five, I run into a similar situation in having less time than I need because there's only a finite number of sessions that these people are going to purchase. And so what are we going to do to get the most bang for your buck? Unless somebody's coming to me to learn those Olympic lifts because they want to use those in a competition, I don't spend the time putting them in. Now, I take elements of each movement absolutely, because we need to develop that speed strength. But spending the time to learn that, they're not going to get the changes in the amount of time that they're looking for. You know, and with all those things said, you know, one of my former athletes is strength coach at a very prominent high school in Charlotte. He has a, a Olympic lift day. Mm-hmm. He's an Olympic lifter by nature. He's an Olympic lift day. He's very skilled at teaching it. Therefore, he feels comfortable doing it. Mm-hmm. He also starts getting those kids as eighth graders. He's got built-in classes that have just athletes in them. There's lots of if-then-thens. Right. If you have this, then there's some more value able to place to it. Travis Mash, one of the best, he stole the world record at 221, the WPO, back when that was a really big deal. He switched over to Olympic lifting, trains a lot of Olympic lifters, runs an Olympic lifting program at Lenore Ryan University, mm-hmm. also helps coach strength coaching with the football program, has a quality ebook on the clean, he would tell you probably that those are more important. Right. It's a matter of preference per coach, per knowledge level, per time. There's a lot of factors that factor in when you're working those lifts in when training an athlete. You know, in the perfect world, you start having them as seventh graders and you can start working those things in and but that's just not reality, at least not reality here in Eastern North Carolina in high school. One of the primary reasons people like Olympic lifting is because it makes you more athletic. But one thing I've also noticed is that the kids that are already athletic are better at it. And so it takes more time if a kid's limited athletically. And you were talking about the guy that you know having certain guys doing certain things. Uh, I was at a conference years ago. And there was a college strength coach there that said that freshmen were not allowed to do cleans at all because they had to learn to do it. And you begin doing the Olympic lifts as a sophomore. And that's really helpful when you've got a captive audience for four years, five years. When you have control of something like that, it makes life much easier. Absolutely. And so what uh, auxiliary lifts do you think are necessary 
to become a good powerlifter? Uh, for me, you know, it's a variation. I always like variations of the main movement. So for squat, it would be, you know, whether it's a pause squat, an air stance squat, wide squat, some variation of that, that movement. Same thing with the deadlift, whether it's from a deficit, whether it's from, you know, off of blocks, whether it's a demo deadlift, just a variation of the deadlift. And the same thing with the bench press, whether it's a pause bench, a two-board press, they're all still going to mimic the main movement. You know, going back to Louis Simmons and the West Side method, I mean, he's influenced all of powerlift in that regard because you're doing, correct me if I'm wrong, lifts that are like the lifts but not doing the actual competitive lifts, right? Yeah, absolutely. Louis is a big box squat guy. They're always going to I – mean, they don't free squat really at all until competition time. They like take one free squat the entire cycle before typically. At least that was old school West Side. I, yeah. I don't know what they're doing now. So without – Going too much into detail, what would your yearly programming look like in terms of progression for a meet? So I, I break things up into off-season phase and meet prep phase. So it doesn't matter. You could basically be in an off-season phase all year long. There's no point in getting into a prep until you're preparing for a meet and or maxi. You know, some people mm-hmm. do like the maxi in the gym. I'm, I'm kind of against that unless you're talking about, you know, training high school athletes. That's a little different. You know, it, it typically like to work in 10-week phases, if at all possible. Um, and really, the, the simple terms is higher reps 10 weeks away, start working our way down to lower reps, and the volume starts tapering down until we get to, you know, singles at heavy weight and make some decisions on what an, a light opener attempt would be, a heavy second attempt, and, you know, out loud everything I've got, third attempt. And the reality of it is the lifts you do in the gym are not going to be nearly as good on the platform for most people because they don't perform the lifts to the quality and standard that needs to be done in a powerlifting meet. So typically your younger lifters in lifting age, not necessarily in overall age, struggle with their first few meets because they're not training to the standard that would be acceptable lifts in a powerlifting. Yeah, and I think that comes down to level, like you said, the younger powerlifters. You know, we've said this before. A lot of people think they're advanced when they are not advanced. And, you know, I've probably mentioned how I've ripped off Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where at the bottom of that pyramid, you're trying not to get eaten by something. And at the top, you're completely fulfilled and you've got the, you know, your soulmate. And it's same same thing with lifting. When someone's getting started, anything's going to work for a little while. And it's after that that you have to really dial that in like you were just saying. Yeah. So you're basically, by the time you get to a meet, you've done enough work that you know what your attempts are going to be, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, you're, when you're getting into that last four or five weeks of training before competition, you pretty much know I'm locked in this range. If I'm healthy, if everything's going well, these are the numbers that I'm capable of. This is kind of where I need to finish at. And you try to reach that peak of the mountain, the strongest possible you can be on meet day. Because all of the other stuff means nothing except for what you did on that day in that competition. That's got to be some tricky planning right there. Absolutely. And there's a lot of, when you're, when you're competing truly against other people in your, in your weight class, sometimes you don't necessarily hit the biggest number you could possibly hit because you're trying to secure enough pounds to make sure you win the competition. Right. And, you know, with Olympic lifting, I don't claim to be an expert on periodization when it comes to that. But, you know, certainly there's overlap in some of the same auxiliary lifts and your technique has to be on point. Absolutely. And so if you're looking for an example of 
really high level Olympic lifting, like historic. Look up Pyrrhus Demos from Greece. He basically has broken every record at every Olympics that you possibly can. And he's, he's ripped too. Is that unusual for a power lifter to have a great physique? So 30 years ago, every power lifter trained with a basically a kind of a bodybuilding style as well. In today's age of powerlifting looks a little different because everyone in the world is a competitive powerlifter. Mm-hmm. And so the physique's not look nearly as good, and it's kind of took this trend to anything over five lifts is cardio, which is absolute bullshit. Yeah. And so, you know, people come to the assumption, oh, I'm going to get weaker if I do more reps. As a whole, I would tell you most electric lifters are probably built better than your casual powerlifter. But you see very few casual Olympic lifters. <laughs> right. People who Olympic lift, they Olympic lift. And that's what they do. And it's typically at a pretty good level. You don't go to a to a gym and see this guy's, you know, snatching. You, you don't go to a public gym and see that. You do go to a public gym and see a million power. Right. And going back to the guy that I was talking about that was teaching that course, you know, he was at the Olympic Center, and it's, you know, kind of like having a scholarship to a college, but you train there, and they give you time to go to class. You know, he had to leave eventually because he just couldn't recover as well as some of the other guys because they do so much. Give me your ideal mixture of the two to work with a high school athlete or a high school team. What parts of the Olympic lifts would you use? What parts of the powerlifting movements would you use, and how would you combine them? All right, so a typical week right now with what we're doing looks like a squat, a variation of the squat, whether it's a fall squat, a box squat, something of that nature, and then three or four secondary movements to specifically work the squat in that muscle group, whether it's a lunge, a Bulgarian split squat, a goblet squat, some sort of hamstring movement, some sort of glute movement, things of that nature. Second day of the week is a bench day. Let's say we, we're going to bench. We're going to do a variation of that bench. Uh, pin press, pause bench press. And then I like to try to work an overhead day in there with that one as well as a secondary movement just because I don't like pairing it with our clean day. Wednesday would be our typical clean day. My younger guys, they're hand cleaning. My older guys are power cleaning. After we get that accomplished, we're doing movements to help support that. So we'll do, let's say, a, a jump shrug, a upright row, a bent over row, all upper back explosive type movements. Sometimes we can squeeze a front squat in on that day as well. It varies. And then we'll squeeze in a deadlift day. And then sometimes I'll work in a speed work day, which is your, your typical west side barbell, working at 60%. We'll try to use some accommodating resistance if we can and try to get all three lifts in, bench squat and deadlift that day. Or we'll get a secondary bench day. Okay. When you mentioned earlier about what was you said, more than five is considered cardio. Cardio, yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely bullshit. Yeah. Speaking of horse shit on the other side with Olympic lifting, doing it for cardio or conditioning like they do, like some people do with CrossFit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely dangerous as can be. Yeah. Doing it for time, doing it for 20 reps. There's so much that can go wrong with that. And I heard someone say one time, they argued with me that if there's an issue, it's because you're not coaching it well. Well, after 10 reps, I can't coach you well enough so that your body doesn't start to compensate, you know, for not being able to recover during that lift. I can't coach you through muscle. Absolutely. And, you know, most reputable Olympic lifting coaches will tell you no more than eight reps, and many say no more than three to five, because you're developing a skill. Absolutely. 
Matter of fact, the guy that I was talking about before that taught that class, he was really a stickler on that. And then he signed a deal with CrossFit. He opened a CrossFit gym, and he was not as much of a purist after that. Money seems to change people's opinions a lot of times. Yeah, seems to. And if you have enough money, I'm willing to change mine. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, give us a call. Yeah. We'll, we will we will compromise. Behind anything. closed doors, I'll still keep doing the same thing, but I will tell you whatever you want for enough money. Yeah, that's right. So if you hear us talking about how great reps are in these situations, don't judge too harshly. Yeah. Somebody cut me a check. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's obviously crossover, and there's obviously benefits to both. And powerlifting will enhance Olympic lifting, and Olympic lifting can enhance powerlifting, at least in terms of the type of responses that you need, developing maximum force and developing force quickly. Well, there's plenty of overlap. Yeah, absolutely. With that, I think we're going to wrap it up because I think we've covered all the bases that we need to. Any parting thoughts? A good strength training program for an athlete is going to blend the two worlds pretty well. Make sure your coach is knowledgeable of what they're knowledgeable about. And that's that's really the biggest part of it. You don't need a layman teaching Olympic lifts. That's just going to lead to absolute injury. And that's why CrossFit has the injury rate that it has. Oh, and they are absolute predictable injuries. Mm -hmm. Shoulder issues, it's a whole other issue with the lack of planning, front dominant kind of movements. And basically my parting thought is make sure that your body is equipped to do either one before you do it. Correct. You don't have those compensations that you were talking about in terms of the flexibility of each joint. If you cannot do triple extension without weight, you have to fix that first. If you can't go through a full range of motion in the squat, you've got to fix that first. And how you do that is by a targeted and consistent dynamic flexibility program. All right. So that's it for this week, and we will check you out next time.